Welcome to Harlem Capital's More Equity podcast. We're so happy you're here. My name is Melody Hom, and I lead community and platform at HCP. This season, I have the privilege of speaking with five incredible Latina luminaries. Venture capital funding for Latino businesses has had a disappointing trajectory since its peak in 2018. Latino founders get only 2% of VC funding, with only four-tenths of a percent going to Latino women. That's why we believe it's imperative to invest in this growing yet mighty community that's committed to paving the path for others. More Equities Latino Luminaries takes you through the journeys of five women building world-changing businesses across the United States and Latin America. From their unconventional career paths to the nitty-gritty of fundraising, they share how they're pursuing their dreams and serving as a lighthouse for the next generation. Hope you enjoy the conversations as much as I did. In today's episode, we chat with the vivacious Susie Ferreira. Growing up with a serial entrepreneur father gave her the courage and risk tolerance to take huge leaps of faith. After spending an illustrious career in corporate finance, often finding herself the only woman in the room, her passion led her to build Genie, an embedded lending platform that helps small business owners build credit and level up. Now, having raised $6 million in capital, she gets very candid about the fundraising journey and her big aspirations for the future. Take a listen. Thanks for joining us, Susie. Hello, Melody. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure yeah. to be back here with Harlem Capital. For sure. Um, you're, you're a friend of the firm. We, we love being able to kind of get a pulse check of all the amazing things happening in Brazil, but also with Latina founders. And I think you have a really good, um, yeah, you have a good pulse check of the environment. But before we get into Ginny uh, in particular, I would love to hear your story. Um, here at Harlem Capital, we, of course, invest in diverse founders, uh, and we started investing in Latin America in 2021. And I think we'd love to hear kind of your origin story um, and the journey to building Genie. Awesome. Uh, it may be long. Do cut, cut me if it starts getting too <laughs> long. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm a small town sort of girl. I come from a, a, to a town called Iturama, right in the countryside in Brazil. We have like 30 to 40,000 inhabitants. And uh, yeah, where I come from, it's very agricultural based and very informal um, sort of professional upbringing. Um, I, everything kind of runs in credit where I come from. If you go to the bakery, you, don't, you just turn up and say, hey, can I have some bread? And then you do your signature and you leave. I say we have one of the most sophisticated payment methods. You just turn up and get the product. Everybody trusts each other. So that's the context of the, the small town where I grew up. My father, which is very common part of this uninformal uh, economy, he was a small business entrepreneur. Uh, in fact, my father didn't have a very nice up upbringing. His, his mom, he didn't have a father. His mom was a domestic employee. He was very poor. So everything he achieved later on was with a lot of hustling and, you know, a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of vision and a lot of struggles. But anyhow, from not having a structured, um, education, he went on to become obviously working in little shops, eventually, uh, become an entrepreneur himself. And what happened was every time he would get to a certain size of his business, he would end up having to use a bank either for bank accounts, but also to, to enable him to grow a little bit, he needed a bit of working capital. 
and that was always the trap uh, because obviously, yes, tech entrepreneurs, we have investors that put money in your company and you grow and eventually you're going to get to profitability. Small businesses don't have that and they end up using banks, right? And the problem is banking capital for that for small business is very much like consumer capital. The products are not really built for, for businesses. They're built for people, for consumers. And those products are like um, overdraft, business overdrafts, credit cards, and they can go up to like 500, 600% a year. Uh, it's called in Brazil, Cheque Especial, which is quite ironic. There's nothing special about it. And <laughs> every time somehow he would end up using those products and, you know, eventually get into a lot of financial difficulty and sometimes even bankruptcy. So that story happened to us. I was around eight, nine years old. Uh, he got in trouble with banks. We lost everything from our house to every single furniture in the house. And that was quite traumatic um, for my brother, for instance. It's still nowadays, it's a problem for him. And I guess for me, I kind of turned that lemon into lemonade uh, in the sense Perfect. that now I'm here building a credit product, building the bank of the future for small businesses so that it's almost like psychologically, as if I could go back in the past and help people like my father. So eventually I went into a university, of course, and I, I studied law because I thought I wanted to do social justice for all the stuff that I, I encountered in my life and through my family. But, you know, the, this, this mission was always there. Like, it was almost like something that maybe was already, before I even came to this earth, was already decided. You know, I was always dragged back to credit. And at the University of Illinois said law, I'll be really focused on credit, on corporate law, financial law. So eventually I ended up just, you know what, let's own it. I love this. This is what I'm here for. It's almost as if my entire life has brought me to be doing exactly that uh, with everything that I encountered. So I went, ended up doing a master's in international finance law uh, at UCL in London. I started my professional international career then. And my main subjects were corporate lending, corporate banking. Eventually, I got a job at Santander, also in corporate banking, and I was effectively lending money to, to the biggest companies in the world. And that's when things started getting in my mind, like, am I here to do this? You know, is this really um, what I've learned, all the experience that I had through my family? I mean, am I doing social justice here, making the big guys richer and richer? My clients were like Jaguar Land Rover, Unilever, Royal Caribbean, all the big guys. And I was like, this doesn't, it doesn't feel right. These guys were basically paying like 20 basis points a year for credit when my father was paying 600%. So at some point I was like, you know what? I've got to do something about this. And there you have technologists changing the world. They have so much more access. The regulators are now trying to reduce the barriers for more competition for more uh, access to technology and reinventing banking. And then I saw an opportunity, you know what, let's go and focus on small business entrepreneurs and let's use technology to be able to serve them. So kind of a long story short um, to get to, you know, where we are today at Dini. Oh my goodness. Yeah, <laughs> it's such a, I know so often we say founders don't have a perfect blueprint when building their business, but to your point, maybe it was in your DNA. Um, and before you you even recognized your your passion and your purpose, it was kind of the calling for you. Um, yeah, I'm curious, uh, just because your dad was such a pivotal part of your story, 
Um, I'm curious if he's still running businesses today, if he's still a small businessman, um, and if he uses Genie. Well, that's a, that's a, a great question, a very fair one, because obviously he was always our muse, right? Um, and that's a very hard question for me, but let's face it, uh, he was always like at the forefront, like, you know, being the biggest support in my life and make, helping me make this vision come true. He was the truly believer and the energy behind everything. Purely from his belief in me and, you know, and his desire to change the world, he knew I had it in me. He, he taught me that. And when we were about to close or to start our seed round, so at this point, we're already, uh, this was 2021. We already have some traction, the product's live, you know, and he's always trying to make like some sort of publicity in his radio stations and his, in his That's Facebook, he was always behind helping out. And then we're starting to raise the, this huge round that really changed the game for Genie on the first week of our fundraising in 2021, in March 2021, um, actually, yeah, around February 2021, he contracted COVID in Brazil and he passed away. And oh my yeah, goodness. it was, it was absolutely unbelievable because here I was in the UK, actually, I couldn't be in Brazil. I had come to the UK because apparently it was safer to be here. And I started the fundraising and first week, uh, I'm there, you know, doing the road show. It was a digital road show because it was after the pandemic and he was taken to hospital. So I was basically in the middle of a pitch. I would stop, talk to my father, put down the phone and having to face investors, asking me some really awful questions sometimes that were so meaningless. But I was basically giving them the time while my father was in UTI, like was in the, sorry, how to say that, but in the emergency, you know, and in one of those calls and one of those questions that I was answering an, an investor, I decided not to pick up the phone to finish the call with the investor. That was the moment he was been taken to emergency and he never returned. And I still remember that investor because it was traumatic. Um, yeah. So after that, I spoke to my investor, said, guys, like this is happening. My existing investors, let's just have my team to continue the fundraising. And they were like, actually, we think that's best that you continue the fundraising and, but you should take some time off like a week. <laughs> and then I had to move all the way to, to Brazil. Like I, and I couldn't, cause I didn't have my passport it was a bit of a mess. Eventually I was able to, so around like seven to 10 days after my father died, I got back into the fundraising and I was having back-to-back -back calls with investors all over the world. And I would turn off the camera and cry like completely. Oh and then, my. hello, hi, how are you? And here's Ginny. And you know, my husband was looking at me and observing, he was like, how can you do that? And I think the only reason why I could do it is because I felt my father was right there by me. So I knew his spirit was there and he knew that I could do it, even though I went through what I was going through. And long story short, it was an absolute success. We raised almost $4 million in that, in that race as a seed round. But I have to say it was crazy. Susie. Thank you so much for sharing your story and, and opening up in that way. Um, I cannot even imagine the kind of grief and joy 
and enthusiasm and sorrow you were having to hold all at once. Um, and it's something that I think you as a leader, it shows your humanity and it shows the way that you can become more empathetic, right? For, for the people on your team, for the people in the world, for your clients, right? Who are constantly going through um, a lot of hardship, even as they're building a really amazing business too. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. That is so meaningful. Um, and I really appreciate you trusting, um, you know, the audience to, to listen to the story as well. If I, guess, I may, you just inspired yeah. me to share a little sentence here because it has everything to do with my father. So he would always say to me, and apologies if it, this is not the most uh, correct thing nowadays with climates and everything with the world. <laughs> uh, he says, in life, you have to kill a lion every day. Uh, and I think that was always, you know, this, um, this, this story about it's not easy and you've got to work extremely hard every day, you know, psychologically, your body, your work, but you have to kill a line. Life is exactly that. You've got to survive. You've got to have resilience. So, so it's that sort of spirit that kept me going. Yeah, no, that's phenomenal. Kill a lion every day. Um, <laughs> something. I'm I'm a Leo. That's my zodiac sign. So I, <laughs> I will embody that as best as I can. <laughs> um, kind of to to the point of this this podcast series called Latina Luminaries. Um, it sounds like your dad is one of those people who has indelibly lit your path for you. Um, you know, paved that that light and that that lighthouse um, for you to to build a business. Um, are there any other folks that pop into your mind as people who were kind of instrumental in your journey? Yeah, I guess lots of people. Let's start with my mom. I, I cannot stop. Like, obviously, the, the funny thing is, you know, my passion for credit, it's twofolded, right? In one side, credit was what brought us down, right? Particularly the wrong type of credit, wrong product really, really made by banks to crush people. Uh, it's not to help them grow or lead to prosperity. It's just to make tons of money. And so that is the negative part of credit. But then there is a very positive side of credit that I've also learned through my family and through the struggles. So after we went bankrupt at that age, uh, my mom, so my mom became like, because my father went bankrupt and had no jobs, anything. He went to work in my grandmother's farm like doing really hard like manual jobs and my mom had to leave the family and she was a teacher and she had a three uh jobs morning afternoon and evening um but what was about my mom taking the leadership she separated from my father legally just so she could actually go back to banks but now she as a borrower to borrow more money so she could rebuild our lives and then that is when things started changing for us, even though it was right at the time that we were at the bottom, it was credit that started to bring us back up. And that was very much with my mom. So she was a very much, she's a woman. She's looking after the family, very diligent with money. You know, even though she made very little, she would always know how to spend that and have a little left to pay back the credit. So with that credit, we're able to buy like not a new house, but rent a new house, everything new in the house was actually quite positive because I was basically living with better things afterwards. That's how I, I thought about it. But what that brings me, the, the memory starts there, right? But then when I worked with the big guys, the big companies that were borrowing hundreds of millions from the banks, what they were doing, they're also using credit as a positive way of beauty, of merging, 
of creating new opportunities and then credit being this leverage to grow and eventually obviously prosperity for those companies. So that is um, something that I've learned at home through my mom. How could you use credit for the positive as well? Credit can be a leverage for growth, can be a leverage for prosperity. But that's a very hard concept to bring to the Brazilian market. But that's part of our mission to show done right and, and repaid and the right amounts. Credit can be um, something that will lead to growth and prosperity. That's someone that uh, I can remember. Also, I was very lucky. Actually, tradition, like throughout my life, I'm always thinking there are these angels around from very simple things. When I was very little and I had to like study in a different city, it was for the first time on my own. I was 16 years old. So I had this like neighbor that would like do things for me, like cook, kind of be like a mother looking after me yeah. because I was very young, living on my own. And I feel like almost everywhere I pass, there seems to be one person like that that is there to... You know, when you were like in a marathon and then there is people that are trying to give the water to make sure you can keep going. And every day I look around and I see people like that. It's even difficult for me to say who, because there are so many people throughout the way um, that have been quite instrumental with small things in their own way, but being there for me and make sure. So for me, I almost every day think about it and it's to do with having gratitude. I think by having this gratitude and understanding, being aware there are people that are out there. They are our support, you know, be grateful for that and use those people. Don't be scared of using people because they, they will help you go through this, this hard times. And I guess more professionally speaking, I had a couple of people that were instrumental. One was my first boss at Santander. He taught me everything about uh, corporate banking and business as, as a whole. He said, look, the first rule of what we're doing here is to listen. You've got to listen your, to your clients. So he left me in a call for like two hours. And then <laughs> I said, hey, what are you doing here? I said, all you were doing here was to listen. So that is very important for us now. Like really listen to the client and what, you know, how they feel about how you're serving them and so on. Second person, one of our investors is my angel investors. And he was the one to say, actually, you've got to believe in yourself. You have this vision for Jeannie. And I was a bit scared to make the leap of faith to do it on my own. I had other uh, entrepreneurial um, entrepreneurial ventures, but I had other co-founders. And this was me on my own starting something quite big. And his name is Matthias Edzer. He's um, now the global director of payments for Facebook, for Meta. Very, very big guy at Facebook. And he was the first one to believe and really give me the confidence and just kick my butt really saying, go what there you... and make it happen. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm very thankful to him and yet yeah, definitely lots of different people, but it would be too long. <laughs> when you think about, um, you know, all those people who have poured so much of their encouragement, support and investment into you, who are the people you're lighting the path for yourself? Who are you trying to illum illuminate the entrepreneurial journey for? It's very nice because actually there was this beginning. I, I'm extremely sociable and uh, yeah, I just always love to be connected. And there was this beginning in my journey, like in the next, in the first two or three years that I really had to police myself to, you know, you really need to focus because before I was in all sorts of communities and <laughs> like supporting out other founders. And then there was a period of time where 
I was like, okay, I really need to make this work because it's by making this work, then I can later on multiply the effect of that success. So there was a massive period of really looking inwards. On, on, On the journey, there were a few people that I would still support. I'm also an investor, an angel investor, small tickets, but you know, like, I like to invest in those people that I see are, are doing something amazing, mission driven or just technology transformation and so on, but less than I would really love to do. You know, eventually I want to be a lot more out there and I started to do this now, actually, I'm getting people that are coming to say, Hey, how can you help? And now I feel like I have a bit more bandwidth. I have a bigger team. I have learned some really hard lessons. That now I feel like I must share this, you know, with, with the youngest or the, the people that are starting. So I'm always very open. Usually I prefer if people come through like, you know, someone make an intro or anything. Cause like LinkedIn is really bad for me because so many, much spam there, but okay. I, I'm open to help. I may not be able to help everyone, but I, I'm quite open. So recently one of this super young, he's still on his third or fourth year, uh, at uni. And he said, you know what, I'm going to let go of this unit, the top university in Brazil. And I, I'm just going to abandon, I'm going to focus a hundred percent of this and I'm going to do a credit company. And I was like, hang God, let's have a conversation. And I'm going to tell you all the stuff that people do not talk about. So I gave this guy the real thing, the real deal, the real hurdles, the, the no's that we received from investors, the, the problems that we see with teams, like. He said, look, you're the first person that spoke to me like at that open level and he pivoted the business immediately. And, and this is, this is what, this is what I like to do. You know, I like to talk to people about the real shit, basically. (laughs) And because the majority of people are very political and they want to, you know, they are always trying to be careful. I like to give like, as it is, obviously it's my story. It may not be the same with everyone, but I, I like to shed the light on all of the real things, you know? So, so I hope these people can count on me on that way, but just to conclude, yes, I would love to do more and I would love to be able to somehow multiply like all the learnings that I've, that I've had, you know, so people don't have to go through the same. Yeah, no, that's phenomenal. And you talk about your trepidation and your initial fear about building genie initially and you know you you exude such confidence and such conviction in yourself but i'm sure as you're saying in those raw vulnerable moments um what were you afraid of um especially having worked in the corporate banking sector and being in a sea of men right i know you are a token woman in many of the spaces you're operating in um can you take us back to those early days of building genie and and feeling like you weren't enough or you wouldn't get the support you needed. Um, yeah, just, just walk us through what was going through your head. Deep questions. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, I had goosebumps when you're asking me those things, because that's exactly the story. In fact, it was all about the lack of confidence, you know? So beginning blood starts when I was in banking, right? Being in banking, always one in 12 men. And, um, yeah, I just never felt that I had a place to have a voice. And whenever I would exercise the voice anyway, people look weird towards me and even women, you know, so it was this very male dominated industry. Uh, 
but it was kind of okay because there was some more regulation there. So I had a couple of sexual harassment cases in banking, but they were more soft <laughs> because things got much worse later on. Um, another encounter after leaving banking, I went on to become uh, an entrepreneur. I was in education and again, a male-driven co-founders, including my own husband. And yeah, it's sad to say here, but even my own husband, I had issues with him, like to say, well, somehow my voice, I was the only woman, it would always be overlooked and overheard. You know, it was, yeah, it was a journey to be where I am today, independently of whatever's going to happen to me or Jeannie or the world. I do feel a lot more confident. I do feel a, more, a lot more like I know who I am. I know what I want out of life, you know. But it was a construction and it was a really, really hard and harsh one. Yeah, no, thank you for, for opening up about all those moments that I know are so relatable to a lot of women, especially in the financial field um, and, and fintech now. Um, as I understand it, Janie, you have a couple co-founders, right? One is a woman and one is a man. Um, I'm curious how you think about the balance of power. Obviously, you are the CEO, um, but given all of your experiences and your history of, you know, putting it bluntly, traumatic moments, um, how did you think about making sure that Jeannie's culture, that the team that you're leading um, would feel very comfortable and confident, right, in the way that you are now? So, yeah, after going through all of those experiences with guys, I was like, you know what, I need to work. I want to work with a woman. So when I, I took my angel investors back then, it was myself, half-made PowerPoint, and my angel investors, <laughs> they were Germans, and two Germans, one was Austrian. I took two of them to Brazil to show them, you know, the opportunity, the regulator, and everything. And we had also one task, which was to get a co-founder that was 100% in Brazil, and to get someone amazing, obviously. And we started the process, and in this process, I didn't have, like, I only want a woman, right? It was was open. And then I started to interview a lot of guys, like amazing CVs and all of that. Really, really confident and like really hot, um, like professionally speaking in ex-Goldman Sachs or, you know, big fintechs in Brazil. But then I came across Andrea and Andrea is my co-founder and chief, uh, chief product. And she was the absolute opposite of these guys. She was like <laughs> super down to earth. She would, she had she built a business, a fintech, back in 2007, 2008. The name didn't even exist back then. And she sold together with her co-founder, Schwack Center. But she was so humble about it. She didn't even, like, really bring that up. She was, uh, yeah, just, she comes from a very wealthy background in Brazil, but you wouldn't tell by the way she dressed, the way she came across. Like, just an incredible human being. And what I noticed about her was more about her smile to begin with, and then her her heart just transpires through her smile, you know? And and then I thought, that's so different type of people that I'm looking here. And what should I choose? Which direction do I go? You know, and I followed my heart as opposed to follow my 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 head, like get those people with those resumes. Let's follow the heart because she has that spiritual place, but of course, um also extremely capable and with an exit as well. But for me it was her heart, her humanity, and her being a woman. I was like, that's it. It's her. And it's funny because then she was in competition with a few people as well in the beginning. 
and we had tasks that everybody had to accomplish. She just kept on delivering, delivering, delivering. So the fact that she didn't have an ego and that she was just down to earth, she would just get stuff done, you know? And so at the end, it was perfect. Well, someone that came with the background has the competence, but comes with the heart. So the, the backbone of our company and of our culture, two women started this business. Two women started this because they have a mission. They want to both drive prosperity. They want to make huge impact on the world. But third, they want to bring more women in the journey and they lead with their hearts. So organically, we believe that our business is going to be this more balanced place because we bring that, we bring the heart and we bring, we bring that equilibrium organically. Yeah. Um, and then quick clarifying question is Vinicius um, still part of Genie? Because I know he was a co-founder and, and the CFO as well. Yes, he still was part. It's just that when we started, it was Andrea and I. Vinicius uh -huh. came a little bit later in the journey. I think we already like for a year, year and a half through the journey. We had always left some equity there because we wanted to find first, we definitely wanted some equilibrium. So we definitely wanted a guy as well for the <laughs> equilibrium. But uh, we wanted someone that could complement our skills. We wanted someone that was really deep into the numbers, spreadsheets and so on. Andrea is very much product. I'm very much sales, commercial, business, fundraising. And Andrea is also technology. And then we wanted someone that comes with the number and the financial background. So he joined us later on. And he does bring that, that balance. But again, what does he have in common to Andrea and I? Is leading with the heart. He's in the same, you know, that is the type of business that we are. Yeah, no, that's phenomenal. Um, you know, Susie, we spoke with you for our 2022 LADAM Woman Founders Report, and the stats are still really dismal and staggering. And I think, you know, all women founding teams make up 4% of the companies that raise capital LADAM, but they've received a mere 0.2% of all VC funding. You are among a very, very small sliver, right? Um, of folks who have successfully raised capital in LADAM. And as I understand it, you've raised a total of $6 million, um to date in equity financing. Tell me about what that kind of badge signifies to you, but also um, the chasm, right, of people who are really trying to make it work, trying to build amazing businesses, but not finding the opportunity perhaps to get funded, not finding the opportunity to grow. Um, I'm curious, it must be a very split uh, feeling sometimes for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to acknowledge and be grateful uh, that I, I was able to raise this money. Actually, I was thinking about that yesterday because I'm always quite self-critical, like, and grass is greener type, type of person, sadly. Uh, but then I think, yeah, no, this is quite meaningful, right? And so I have to be grateful, but you know, fundraising is blood, sweat, and tears. It's so tough. It's tough for any founder, man, woman, even for the investors themselves. We don't talk about it because investors like to pretend they're posh <laughs> because they're <laughs> investors and they're like, wow, look at us. No, but they're like us. They are um, a little bit kind of entrepreneurs as well, you know, depending on, on the position, but they also have to raise money. So I, I know that raising money is hard. And just to tell you a little story, actually, even before we get to the to this point, but 
I started raising money. I was like in my like teens, like late teens. So no, actually it was 21. I'm sorry about that. Life is just going so fast. So I came <laughs> over to England for the first time and I needed to find some sort of job, right? I didn't have a lot of money and to be able to stay here, I needed to make a little bit of money. So I had to go out in the street. I was one of those people that represents a NGO or like those, those like fundraising for social causes and they would pay us 10,000 an hour. So it was a really good job to have. And I would have to be like under the snow and the ice, basically stopping people in the street and asking their for them for their credit card number. That's how these people fundraise here, which is insane. So I started back then and was like, wow, fundraising is hard. So I would like to acknowledge that fundraising must be hard for everyone. Uh, raising one is just tough. But let's think about what is the problem? Like, I do have to accept though that for women, the stats are saying the truth. And I, I know, and I have other female entrepreneurs around me, it's way, way harder, but it's extremely, extremely hard for women to raise. And I don't think that it's just because someone decided, oh, you're a woman, therefore it's going to be harder. I think there is a lot to do with things that we're not even thinking about. Neither us as founders, neither the investors themselves. It's, all, it's an unconscious bias, right? Uh, when you are screening for people, you probably a way of categorizing people in a fast way is to give them these labels, right? Oh, X Stanford. Stanford, XMIT, at Harvard, particularly if you're teaching to American investors, they want <laughs> to put you into those boxes and make the process much faster and have this, this quick way of identifying. And yeah, it turns out that obviously that is one thing, this more elite thing, right? You're not part of one of those universities. Some people can't even be part because, you know, they just weren't born in those countries, simply as that. Uh, but then if you're a woman, there is that thing. And even if you are an investor, woman or man, I think there is this unconscious bias because the men, usually they have a way of pitching, a way of talking, you know, and, and they are part of certain groups and certain, they've, they've attended some places and they have this network. So there's all these things around being a man and being fundraising that it's unconscious that already may, helps the investors form an opinion. And, and for me, that's the sad part because you, it's not very clear and obvious what you can do to change that. But um, uh, yeah, sharing a bit of my personal story as a woman fundraising, it has been bloody difficult. And um, I see that when I talk to them, they said, no, we don't change. We don't have any problem, nothing to do with women and men, but still happens. We get less money. We get people don't take us as seriously or we don't speak in a certain way, or we're not as number-driven as men because a lot of male guys have gone to more like uh, STEM universities and so on. I'm a lawyer. I come from a humanity background. <laughs> so I will have a different way of pitching. I'll have a different way of telling my story. So I think these small things, um, yeah, end up making it much harder for women to, to fundraise. Uh, and it's sad. My next, my next company will most likely be about this whenever I, I do something new is how do I help women getting the money? Um, yeah, because it's very hard. Yeah. I'm curious now as you have successfully raised capital, um, what's a, what's a word of advice or maybe caution that you would share with perhaps think, think back to 21 year old Susie, right? Someone who has a lot of dreams, perhaps very, um, ambitious, 
but not quite sure which way to turn uh, as they think about scaling their business. Um, are, are there one or two pieces of advice that you would share as people enter the shark zone, right, of, of figuring yeah. out ways to, to get more funding? I guess, uh, first of all, I would probably think of a way of not needing funding. <laughs> How can I Certainly. make money from day one? I think this whole thing of VC-backed companies, I mean, I do like lots of it. There's plenty of things that I love about it. Just the opportunity to be here having this conversation and having the exposure that that path brings you. But the dependency, particular, particularly now that the world has changed, right? It's much more about, it's less about the unicorns, more about the cameras. It's more about um, profitability, your path to profitability. So try to be profitable as early as possible, like sell something at a, with a bit of a margin, get that money and, you know, just slowly build a little bit more traction on actually making money. Uh, even though it may be manual, whatever it is. So I would think really careful, like going to this path with only the PowerPoint and then working things through. No, work things through before. If you have a job, keep your job, work it on the side. Uh, I'm an employer, so I shouldn't be saying that. But, you know, <laughs> the, the truth is, if you want to do your own company, that's what I, I think people should do. Even the people at Genie, you know, after their work, Think about what is it that you want to solve, what problem, really get to know the customer, the pain, and find a way of selling your solution, even if it's a manual one, selling it, have making money out of it, and find a way of building a model where you need you need much less capital than what historically companies are going for. This is my first advice. Make money as soon as possible and try to reduce the dependency. But if you decided that that is the path that you want to go, then I'm going to say something that hurts me to say. So up to this point, it was very frustrating that I didn't have those labels. You know, like I didn't go to Stanford. You know, I went to UCL, which is like top two in, in the country in the UK. But nobody cares about England, it seems. They <laughs> <laughs> care about the US. But, um, you know, I would think, okay, so if that, that is what people care about, what, what if I do a course there? What if I do the network there? Y Combinator, again, they turned us down so many times. And then a lot of guys with the same idea, maybe they had a better pitch, I don't know. They got through, but Y Combinator seems to be very good at turning down women. So um, yeah, still, that's the credibility. People want to have that, that, that um, certification. So as much as I hate this is the reality, I feel like, well, let's embrace it. I didn't know that before and I was a bit frustrated. No, I'm saying, do it. Try to get it all into IC. You may not get though because it seems very strict, but there is latitude and there are a few others now trying to disrupt them. And getting those credibilities and let's say uh, maybe you don't, you didn't go to that university, but perhaps you can be, bring a co-founder and make the investors happy, you know, by having those tags uh, because you're probably going to need that. Um, and uh -huh. it makes me sad to say that, but I just want to be practical. Yeah, no, I love the real talk, um, <laughs> the raw and vulnerable reality uh, that I think we we all, anyone who's in the venture landscape and ecosystem, it really resonates. Um, would love a quick snapshot on Jeannie's business today. Um, obviously, you founded the company in 2019. Fast forward four years, you have had no shortage of obstacles, both macro and micro. 
um, a new president, obviously, in Brazil. I'm curious, and I didn't know one of your passions is politics. That's that's sort of why I brought it up. But I am curious, um, you know, as you look today at the business that you've built, um, where do you see it going from here uh, as you think about expansion, as you think about clientele, um, offerings? I, I'm curious about the growth story there. Yeah, so... I mean, I, I have to be grateful again, even though I went through a ton of hardships and, you know, both from a micro perspective, but then facing the macro and the domino effect that it has on the micro. Um, yeah, it's been like a, a crazy journey so far. And I can talk a little bit about that in a, in a second, but I have to be grateful in the sense that even though the world seems to be almost collapsing right now, particularly in our industry, you know, I'm looking at Rails Bank and they are gone and i'm referring to them because obviously um yeah there was that that situation personal situation there and then you look at silicon valley bank and then you look at credit suisse and so on so you see all these huge companies now going down and us being a small company we did have to adjust so we had to reduce the number of people in our company had to adjust to the re new reality and adjust our growth curves but now we do feel like even though it is smaller, perhaps from a number of different cost base, we feel much stronger. Uh, and we have to be grateful for the fact that our partners, they have stood there during the tough times like 2022 and the big shift from growth to profitability to sustainability. We had to change the business model and our big, the platforms that we work with, they had to understand, you know, there'll be a lot less origination, a lot less growth. You've got to keep up with us while, while we fix things that we broke through our crazy growth journey. And they stuck there with us. Our debt partners stuck there with us. Our uh, equity partners invested more in us. So overall, as much as things are really hard and we had to make really tough decisions, those people stayed with us. Our customers stayed with us. So I feel quite blessed by going through the storm but, you know, resilient and ready to continue to learn now in a slower pace and then eventually be able to fly. But just maybe giving a little bit of a snapshot, snapshot of, of our evolution, uh, launching in November 19. So basically our real traction started around March, April 20, and that was COVID, right? Having to go through COVID, it was insane. And our investors were like, and it was very early for us. And they were like, actually, let's wait and see. Let's go slowly. We're like, actually, this is now when companies need us the most. So we start to accelerate quite a lot. When nobody was putting money in the market, we started lending. For us, it was an amazing learning curve and allowed us to accelerate. And then by getting that, that um, proof of point, we were able to approach the first platform, which was iFood in Brazil, one of the biggest and and uh, highest profile platforms in Brazil. They understood our vision. They had similar visions. So we joined forces after iFood. Then, you know, the word was out in the market around the end of 2020, you see, uh, or mid 2020, uh, Andresi Harris and, and the whole world talking about every tech company is going to be a fintech. We were building an infrastructure to enable any tech company and particularly in our case, e-commerce and, and marketplace to become a fintech, to become the bank okay. of small businesses. So it was just the perfect uh, combination, embedded finance, embedded lending arrived, but that was exactly what we were doing on, on the background. 
sort of able to surf the, that big wave of embedded learning and embedded finance. Around 2021, we raise a round, we have a lot more cash to bring amazing people and we start to accelerate. But that's where I, I think there was a, a bit of a, a problem there because obviously we are really surfing the growth uh, mindset, the growth of customers, but perhaps we were not ready yet. And that's a lot to do with the mentality of the industry, grow, 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 but you're not really ready to grow, right? Particularly not in credit. So I say, and today we had a company all hands, uh, a reflection time and looking forward to 2023. I call it the crawling straight stage 2020. 2021 was supposed to be the walking stage, but that's one when, when we started to run. So I say, we weren't ready to run. We should have walked first. So a few things were broken, uh, a few processes, a few issues there. Uh, in 2022, we're like growing 20, 30% a month of love, but breaking things in parallel. And we're like, you know what? We've got to stop that. And obviously in parallel, the world was changing and we had to stop that. We had to focus on sustainability, after profitability, unit economics. So it was a huge change in the business. And we did a lot of things to change and be adaptive adapted to the new reality. So now we're back into the walking stage. Uh, 2024 will be ready to run stage. And then 2025 to 2027, 2027, we're going to be flying. So that's, that's yes. our story. <laughs> Watch out world. Um, <laughs> you know, you are such a visionary and I think really inspire um, so many people who, who are listening, not only builders, but I think anyone who has a dream, right, and wants to pursue it, and it really, um, you know, gives me a lot of energy and hope, right, for for the next generation as well. If you weren't building Genie, uh, what would we find you doing right now? Um, okay, I would be um, an investor, actually. <laughs> I would uh -huh. be... I would be funding uh, women. That would be my sole purpose, um, to bring women, to really raise the profile of women founders and be absolutely 100% investing in women-led businesses. And and I would start with women and eventually be more around diversity, uh, but that's what I would do. In fact, before I started the Genie, I had these two paths uh, and... I had to go through the credit because, as I said, I had a colleague right throughout my life. But this remains uh, a big passion for me, uh, investing in women. And that's exactly what you guys do. So oh, congratulations. Yeah, exactly. It's one of my dreams. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not a dream that's far off from reality because I know you're already an angel investor and you're already kind of getting your feet wet there. You truly are a luminary, Susie. Thank you so much for joining us today on the More Equity Podcast. Oh, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure.